Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics Australia, and this week on the show, I'm joined by the chairman of Australia and New Zealand for Human Synergistics, and that's Sean McCarthy. Hey, Sean. Hi, Dominic. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while since we've had you on. (laughs) COVID lockout. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it doesn't make it so easy. You've been in New Zealand for the last uh, couple of years, Sean. Banished to the colonies. We haven't seen you in the flesh for a while, but it's good to hear from you. Uh, Now, hey, I've wanted you on the show to get your insights about something that comes up quite often, and especially in the media, I read about it. So I wanted to see what you thought, what the research says, and that's on the generation gap. You know, so I read a lot of articles about, uh, you know, especially with Gen Z coming into the workforce at the moment, that they really have to be managed very differently and their expectations are very different than even that of millennials and Gen X and baby boomers and so on. So I'd love to just, you know, get under the hood of, you know, is this generation gap real? Is it something we should be thinking about? And if so, what kind of stuff? How does that sound, Sean? It sounds great. Look, there's obviously multiple answers to that question, and it's a very good one. So is there a difference? Yes and no. Uh, Is it important? Yeah, absolutely. So let, let me begin by sort of trying to do verbally a party trick that I do at conferences where I have PowerPoint slides. So I'll just go through the bullet points on the slide. So this is a slide that's headed up the expectations of the incoming workforce. And it says, young people want, firstly, opportunities for personal growth and challenging work. Secondly, the desire for equality and for power to influence management decisions. Thirdly, social significance and a sense of purpose of the firm. Uh, Fourth, intrinsic rewards like pride of work, dignity, impact of the work. A sort of a now orientation but towards career status, so they want to be chief executive the day after tomorrow kind of thing. (laughs) Balance between emotional and rational aspects of work and lifestyle and a preference for cooperative rather than competitive relations. So I put that up when this gen topic comes across my bowels and say, who do you think that is? And the vast majority of times, if not 10 out of 10 times, people will say it's millennials or it's Gen Z or something like, depending upon what group we're talking about. Uh-huh. And my answer is actually Clay Lafferty, the founder of Human Synergistics and the creator of the Human Synergistics Circumplex, wrote that in a booklet in 1978. Is that right? He was, he was talking about the baby boomers, so the expectations of oh. the incoming workforce with people like me who are starting jobs in the 1980s, thousands of millions of us around the world. So that's the first point I'd like to make, is that one of the fundamental flaws with the research, I believe, around Gen, go back to Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, millennials, etc., is that it's based on a model that compares the needs of a baby boomer like me to a Gen Z younger person or a millennial. And of course, my needs are fundamentally different to a Gen Z and vice versa. So what it needs to do, and this is very, very difficult to do, is longitudinal research where you would have taken me 40-odd years ago in my 20s and compared me to a 20-year-old today. And that's obviously very difficult to do. So if you, you wind the clock back a long, long time, my needs may well have been very similar but different, and that's part of the point. 
to the millennials and Gen Z folks coming in. So I mean, looking at that slide just by way of an example, and one of the reasons that I put it up and call it a bit of a party trick is people walk in and saying, yeah, definitely, that's Gen Z, 100%. that's millennials. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like when 78, a very, very long time ago. And by one of an example, I mean, young people coming into organisations now expect all the latest technology. Uh-huh. And so they expect the iPad, the uh, the fancy phones, the little slim computers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that wasn't necessarily so different in my day. What was different, of course, was the technology. So in my first job in a major New Zealand-based consulting firm, my first role was to review all of their data on the use of their psychometric tests. And this required calculations of standard deviations and variances and all those sorts of lovely statistical things. And I asked for a statistical calculator, which was the latest invention in 1973, because it allowed (laughs) you to put all the numbers in and push a button that created a standard deviation for you, (laughs) rather do that. So that was the same sort of expectation that I wanted this kind of technology. Now, wind that up to uh, 2021, and it's around the you know the communications technology, et cetera, but it's still a desire to have the latest technology. So the toys are different, but the underlying need, the underlying kind of psychology is actually pretty stable. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, as you're rattling off that list, I was just writing it down, you know, growth orientation, want to be challenged, I want to have influence, the significance of, you know, their impact as an organization. Yep intrinsic rewards now, orientation. I mean, if you put that list down, everyone would say 100% you're talking about Gen Z. And it's funny because I remember, you know, maybe a more recent kind of longitudinal study is comparing it to millennials who people would have said, yep, you're 100% talking about millennials. So it's interesting that even in, you know, however big that generation is, was it every 10 years, 15 years or something? People are already seeing that these groups are totally different, but they would have described them the same way, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you wind the Absolutely. Clock well, I showed this uh, slide at a conference like 25 years ago. People say, you're talking about Gen X. Make it 15 years ago and you're talking <laughs> about Gen Y, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody ever said baby boomers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is really fascinating. But I guess if you really think back, like, you know, in the 60s, that generation coming in then. I mean, it was very revolutionary and, and all that. It's well known for being so. Well, so why- you said the risk, risk of sounding like an old guy that thinks about the past too much. I mean, the 1960s is known as one of the – it's a decade of revolution, and it, it was. The world changed dramatically, and I have to say the older I get, the sorrier I feel for my parents. <laughs> 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 Having to have gone through that. So on, on that, though, Sean – it's interesting. So what I'm hearing is we should think more in terms of age brackets then. Yeah. So people in yeah. their 20s, people in their 30s, 40s, and so on. Um, exactly. Rather than that the generations are totally different. The toys have changed, but actually people in their 20s have similar needs. So what are maybe some of the key differences between those kind of age groups then? Yep. Well, uh, I can recommend a great book that people should write. It's called Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life. Originally written in 1977 and re-updated in 1995, it's one of the biggest selling books in history. It's named by the Library of Congress as one of the most influential books of our time. So it's called Passages, Predictable Crises of Adult Life by Gail Sheehy. And what she said is when you look at the decades of adult development and adult growth, 
as the book suggests, there are predictable stages that people go through. So when I'm in my 20s, when I was in my 20s, it was a time to try out different stuff, so to, to have adventures, to go and do things that were vaguely dangerous, that I look back on now and say, oh my God, how stupid was <laughs> I to do that? It's a time to try out new jobs. And I mean, I ended up, I started off at university thinking I was going to be an accountant and end up as a psychologist, for God's sake. So that's that. And she calls that the try-out 20s. It's the period in which we're developing a strong sense of self-concept and self-image and self-efficacy. Mm. And we're trying to figure out basically the answer to the question, who am I? Mm. By the time we get into our 30s, we're now juggling multiple roles, often including raising children, particularly for the younger generations and baby boomer times. So, for instance, the average age of getting married, I was reading the other day in New Zealand, the average age when I got married was 21, which is in fact the age wow. I was when I got married. Yeah, right. But now it's more like 32. Uh-huh. And uh, so big differences over time in terms, and this is part of the revolution of the 60s, of course, acceptance of you know, premarital sex and all these kinds of things. Uh-huh. So in the turbulent 30s, you've got lots of different roles happening at the same time. So you've got a job, uh, you're trying to buy a house, you're building a career, you're building relationships, you're networking like crazy. You may or may not have children entering into it at that stage in your life. And so that's the beginning of the feeling of being, you know, sort of somewhat tied down. You've got the mortgage kind of thing. Mm. And then she says the next decade is the flourishing 40s. And by that point, and this was really quite interesting about adult development. In the original book, she saw 40s as midlife. Now that's the 50s and 60s with uh, life expectancy again back then in the early 70s was about 66 for a male, I think, from memory in New Zealand. Now it's 83. Hmm. So some of that medicine has helped along the way. <laughs> so the so the flourishing forties is you know so it's sort of a point in time which I say oh I'm not actually that old I've still got you know forty odd years to go blah 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 etc. So it's a time of reflection and reassessment. So that's when you go out and buy the you know, e bike and all that sort of stuff and get back to doing some of the stuff you might have dreamt well, about in your twenties. And I guess you got some of your time back. Uh, you know, the kids are a bit older, and now you've got money to do some of those things yeah, that you wanted to do in your twenties. That's exactly right. So you can now afford the what is it, about seven and a half thousand dollar e bike or something to go <laughs> exactly. do those things. So that's the, another time of adventure. But she calls it the flourishing forties. Then there's the flaming fifties. So this is, I've now got even more spare time. I might have retired earlier. I might have made my fortune and left the workforce. I can. I mean, we had a call from our chap who's framed pictures for us for most of our adult lifetime yesterday. And he's uh, just turned 60 and he said, I've sold the business. I'm I'm leaving. I'm not, et cetera. And we asked, what are you going to do? He said, oh, we're going to buy a couple of e-bikes and do lots of riding and go for long walks. And this is classic faming 50s for him at 60, but mere detail. So it's a time to build on and enjoy pursuit of these sort of new goals that you might have thought about during the the reflection and reassessment of the 40s. Then it goes on through the 60s and the 70s. But very good research, I'll come back to say what I said before, would be longitudinal. We're looking at me in, say, 1973 to a 20-something-year-old in 2011, but of course that's very, very difficult to do. Mm. And the, the the best I've got is that list of Clay Lafferty's, which I think is amazing. So then I'm just going to step into a little bit of technical psychology stuff at the moment. It's called the, the psychology of nostalgia. It's just inevitable. It's human behavior that when we look back at 
younger people doing what we never had the chance or the opportunity or the money to do, we don't necessarily attribute positive concepts to that. So we look at, from the one hand, what do I feel as being part of that group? So when I'm in my 20s, I feel free. When I'm in my 30s, I feel tied down. When I'm in my 40s, I feel a little bit insecure. When I'm in my 50s, I feel very adventurous. But when I look back at them and I'm now at the sort of adventurous stage and I'm looking at a free teenager or 20-year-old, I see them as very, very self-centered, frivolous, uh, only interested mm. in what they want, etc. And thus we have expressions, you know, when I was young and good old days and mm. all these kinds of nonsense expressions that we build into the vernacular. And so the further away we are from the age bracket, so that me in the 60s is likely to see a 20-year-old as even more self-centered than a 30-year-old is going to see that 20-year-old, if that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. Which, and you always hear that, right? It's always the generation complaining yep. about the next one. It's like, oh, yep. these guys, you know, they're, they're the problem. Exactly. Um, and. And repeat, basically. I'm sure, you know, whatever the next generation is after Gen Z, the Gen Zs will be, oh, my goodness, you know, these guys, what <laughs> yeah. are they doing? What is going to be the next one? Do we double back to double A or uh, something? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, I think it's the cre- coronials. That's it, coronials. Oh, okay. Or the Zoomers. The well, Zoomers. Yeah. Maybe that's spend, Gen Z. I spent half my day on Zoom. Does that make me a Zoomer? <laughs> well, that, you know, that's interesting as well, Sean, because I guess, you know, talking about the difference in toys and all that stuff, yeah. you know, and people talk about, you know, they, they have these toys, but so, so do millennials, so do Gen Xs. You know, today we all have actually the same access to technology. Now, we might not have grown up with it, and I suppose that might be the difference. Well, yes, I mean, I think to me that's really quite a significant difference in terms of understanding some of these, I mean, I said both yes and no to your first question about is there a difference and does it make a difference, et cetera. And so this is a bit of the yes bit, I guess, is that if we look at technology, technology increasingly has reinforced the instant. So again, if I cast my mind back into history, I mean, I have vivid memories of sitting in some horrid motel room somewhere, hooking modems into my laptop, hooking the, the laptop onto my cell phone and hearing that sort of as it went out to find some sort of reception signal for me. And was basically hope and prayer because it's sort of eight times out of ten it didn't connect. And so I always knew it took me a long time to get onto the net to be and then of course when I did get onto it things were very slow. But nowadays, I mean I start watching a YouTube video. If I'm not really very, very interested in it after like twenty seconds I stop watching it. Uh. And it's this instant that has become very real for us. And I, I, I like to quote back in this, what would have been about the 80s to the 2000s, we had a young fellow called Alistair Carey who headed up our IT and grew up with the business, basically. But I remember in about the, somewhere in the mid-90s, say 95, 94, he said to me, the goal of the IT industry is have, to have all of the world's information available in your pocket. And uh, that sort of stuck with me, obviously, because it's a while ago now. But it's all the world's information available in your pocket. And when you think about it, you're reading something, and you don't quite know what that means, or you're interested in the history of it, or you want to know more details, straight into Wikipedia or Google or whatever, and you got it in seconds. Uh. And, of course, this has its own issues for the likes of the medical fraternity where, where people are Googling. I think one of the basic rules of life should be never Google health issues. Well, and one of the... You know, differences is back in the day, you know, even even I remember you'd have to go to the library 
you know, yep. and get a book that had been published yep. and, you know, it has to pass certain yep. Yep. standards to do so, whereas you don't need that anymore. One of the funniest experiences I've ever had with that, if I can share it with you for a moment, is my son, who's now about to turn 40, but when he was 10, we had a very, obviously very early computer in the house, and we had this five and a quarter floppy disk program called PC World, and it was like a social studies geography program where you could sort of type in London and it would come up with all the information about London, et cetera, et cetera. And he was given a project to do for school to look up, let's just pretend London to continue with that. So go and research London, give us all the information you can find about the population, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So he got onto the computer, put the five and a quarter disc in, colon A, colon back, or something he used to in those days, and then typed in London and up came all these sort of 10 pages of information about London. So he hit the print button and handed that in the next morning. And they failed him because he was supposed to go to the library and research it out of books and write it up, etc. And his response, even at 10 years of age, was why? I mean, you asked me to research London and produce this information. Here it is. And I just always thought that was very, very, this was the beginning of the IT stage for uh, society, I think. That makes me wonder, Sean, you know, we talked about how, you know, the basic psychology is the same of the generation, but the toys are different. I don't know if you thought about this one, but you know, there's also, I guess, a lot of talk of, you know, what impact things like social media and stuff is yeah. having on people and particularly on younger people. Could something like that, a, a tool as uh, ubiquitous as that, actually be changing psychology? Yes, short answer to that. And this is, again, part of the argument for yes. So the, the fundamental line that I would argue against there being differences or meaningful differences is the poor research and comparisons between generations. I think the biggest supporter of yes is the, the globalization of technology and the socialization of that process. So the young people, and let's face it, old people as well, uh, it's extraordinarily well networked and connected. And I use the example, and I mean, it must be so hard parenting teenagers nowadays I'm glad that mine are through that, well past it. But, I mean, in the old days, if, if you were bullied by somebody, there might be two or three other people that would bully you potentially in the school playground. But now, like, the whole school can know about it within seconds. And, uh, damn it, the whole world can know about it within minutes. So it exacerbates many of those interpersonal issues that are just a natural part of growing up. And uh, it's affected youth suicide rates and all these kinds of things. So not necessarily in a positive way. And, uh, of course, you know, we have the situation at the moment with COVID and the need for vaccinations and whatever side of the debate you come down on, then there's a lot of information, depending upon your point of view, what is information and misinformation that's being supported by these social network organisations. So it's, it's only going to become a much bigger issue. So this is a key differences is that these young folks are very, very well networked. Communication is instant. I mean, again, when I started in business, we had a telex machine, so we would hmm. type in the message and it would communicate basically over like a radio network to the other side of the world. And this this was the height of technology. I mean, now we talk to each other and we can see each other within seconds of it being broadcast. So that in turn impacts hugely on the psychology of young people. So there's more insecurity amongst teenagers. There's more fear of backlash from things. It's leading to, uh, you know, demands for more diversity and all of that kind of sometimes good, sometimes not so good stuff. That's interesting. So, so, so this is kind of the argument where it's a bit of both, you know, like yeah, a 20-year-old is. is a 20-year-old, whatever yeah. generation. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so let, let me highlight some of the differences, if I may. I think, I mean, unlike us, and, and again, this is the impact of technology, at that young age, they know how to create news networks. So, of course, you, you could say that we did that at the 1970s as well, but obviously not to the extent that you can today. I mean, you can open a give a, give a little page or something like that and have a million dollars within 24 hours if the cause is important enough to enough people. We could never do that. You know, we might get $10 from our friends or something like that. You see these young people, Greta Thornburg folks, so they can get very political because they, they can use these networks to have a voice and get their opinions across. Also, of course, the technology has made thousands of people extraordinarily wealthy. Mm. So they are very much aware that people with great wealth are self-employed particularly in that technology sector. So it's not unsurprising that they want to go out and do that kind of thing if they've got those capabilities. The other is, I mean, this is really important from a culture point of view and leadership development point of view. They actually can come into the organization firstly knowing what a great place to work looks like and secondly probably finding some information about what it's like to work in that organization. So I remember once I Googled you know, what does a great place to work look like? And I got something like about 9 million hits or something ridiculous like that. So they can mm. do their research before joining the organization, which we could never do. Yes. Yeah. Which changes it. Although, I mean, maybe that's another episode, Sean, like sometimes it's hard to tell even from the outside, right? Because there's a lot of uh, PR, I suppose, for companies. Absolutely. And that's a, a, another issue in our industry that organizations talk about what they do. And they always talk about it in very positive lights because they know candidates, customers, et cetera, will be reading this stuff. Mm. It's not not necessarily 100% accurate. Mm, totally. One other thought I had, Sean, just uh, I'm jumping back a bit now, but we're talking about the different age brackets, you know, 20s, 30s, the turbulent 30s, the tryout 20s. And you talked about the average age of people getting married going from 21 to, to 31 yep. or whatever it was. Does that mean or might that mean that tryout period is actually a longer period now than perhaps it used to be, you know? And is that part of the reason people are like, oh, well, by the time I was 29, I had two kids and a mortgage, you know? And yep. and yep. now it's like, well, no, I'm still traveling the world and, you know, not ready to settle down. Yep. Like, is that part of the difference? Yeah, that's a good pickup. So, I mean, there's all these truisms and movies and sitcoms and things that, you know, when Kids leave home at 20 years of age, they'll probably come back and live with you again before they turn 30. And uh, so it's always a temporary kind of departure. Mm. But there's more opportunities available. Again, technology has opened up these opportunities that back in the day, doing an OE in London was uh, sort of a step into the unknown, basically. Mm. Whereas now you've got all that information at your fingertips. You've got more opportunities to look at contract type, different type of work methods and processes, if you like, different structures. And so it's highly likely, and I seem to recall from memory that Gao Shihi writes about this, that it's, it's been pushed through into the 30s. And of course, you know, her tryout 20s, et cetera, is just a classification and a way of aggregating mm. ideas around that and doesn't need to be taken literally. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I think nowadays, you know, with the OE to London, it's now becoming the OE to kind of even more exotic places, I suppose, you know, like what's the next frontier kind of thing. Yeah, COVID's made the Sydney-based OE wow. Newcastle or something <laughs> like that. True. <laughs> it's made the Audi outside your 5K radius. Well, as a New Zealander, I can say, and, and you will know this, that 
the overseas experience up until COVID was so big mm. that people would actually look at a candidate and say, but you've never worked overseas. And that would, so working overseas and having that kind of experience was seen as a good thing from an employment point of view. And so just interesting the way criteria shifts. Yeah, well, that was a very you know New Zealand cultural thing, yeah. wasn't it? Well, well, isn't and again, it? surprised with COVID to discover the 5 million people we have living in New Zealand, there's another 1 million or 1.5 million New Zealanders that don't live in New Zealand anymore. Mm, that's yeah. right. Myself included. So there you, go. <laughs> you can't, um, can't, can't get home because of you. Can't get home, no. Yeah. So I guess just just closing thoughts for me, Sean, something I was wondering about or thinking about is, you know, there's a lot of talk about these, you know, generational characteristics. Even, you know, if we go to the people in their 20s like this and that, you know, oh, they're self-absorbed, they're lazy, whatever. Yeah. But I've seen plenty of examples to the contra of that, you know? Yeah. Like, so I guess for me, it's a watch out that when we talk about any kind of group for that matter, but generations in this one that you got to be pretty careful taking you know one brush to a whole generation of people you know millions of people literally yeah well there's an old saying as soon as you label someone you judge them and i think that's particularly true in this instance that the whole notion of the younger people are lazy and self-centered that's purely attribution so that's me making a judgment of somebody based on my own pathology, not a rational conclusion from observation of behaviour. Mm. And so the attribution is fundamental to all of the ways in which we think about other people. But, yeah, I mean, we worked with a uh, one of the case studies, in fact, Adshell, in our In Great Company book, who shows what they did and how they moved to a significantly more constructive culture over time. They, of course, being like an advertising agency, had a very young staff demographic and it was, it was sort of like the senior people who were you know, really old, like early 40s or something, kept <laughs> referring to, you know, ah, oh, Gen Y kind of stuff, you know, or millennials. And so the chief executive banned the use of the term in the company, slightly power-oriented, but he, the point was well made, you know. Once we label these people, we now talk about them in somewhat derogatory and they're frustrating, and it's all because they're Gen Y or Gen Z or millennial or so let's not use that word. And I thought that was a really cunning act, actually. And so fundamentally then, Sean, if, you know, kind of a, a belief of mine, people, people are people at the end of the day. And actually, you know, we were saying at the start of this that what drives people is actually fairly similar. So what are some of those drivers for us to keep in mind? Yep, absolutely. And this is, uh, it's important to, to, I think, as I sort of try to bullet point these, is that this is true for anybody. So it's true for a, uh, even a retired person coming back into work, as we're now able to do with longer health lines, or it's a 20-year-old coming in. So first, and I think one of the most important things is people want a sense of purpose in what they do. They, I mean, it's, again, it's human psychology that people need to be able to feel that what they do is important. Mm. And that's becoming more and more more and more important for younger generations as they get a stronger political sense through the environment and all of these things that they naturally enroll in. I mean, in our day, we might have protested against the Vietnam War mm. and maybe that was about it, but now they're politically active in things that are important to anybody, not just a specific demographic group. So a sense of purpose in what they do is fundamental. Some sort of sense of career growth so that, I mean, the age-old expression is do people 
leave your organisation better people than when they came. Mm. So do they have a sense of I've learned some stuff, I've been developed, I've learned new skills, not necessarily job-related skills, it could be personal skills. The notion of fulfilling work I think is important, that uh, I get a sense of accomplishment and fulfilment from what I do. Social skill development, so the ability to build interpersonal capabilities, I think is what organisations offer to people. Of course, a quality in treatment. I mean, I, I read things on gender pay gaps and stuff like that, and I can only ask why. You know, why would you have that, for heaven's sake? So quality of treatment is very important, and diversity and inclusion, as it's referred to nowadays. They get active projects to work on. Uh, there's some sense of stability, maybe, in the work environment. People, you know, we talk about change all the time, but of course, again, it's a bit of a truism that people don't naturally like change. So some sense of stability can be helped. And uh, always keep in mind the importance of, um, of motivation. So is the job that individuals are doing in that organization intrinsically motivating for that individual? And, and that's based on research since the mid-1950s. So in terms of you know what people want to be able to get from their work, it's like being part of something. And that's been slightly threatened, and I use that word carefully, with COVID, where people are now somewhat disparate locations, etc. But mm. it doesn't necessarily mean to say we can't still function as a team. It just puts more pressure on us to do that. Mm. Being supported by the people that are around you, enjoying what you do and having some fun, learning some new skills, and come back to the fundamentals of achievement thinking, which is what Clay Lafferty was so fascinated with and led to the development of the circumplex. A sense of accomplishment and a belief that my effort can make a difference and the ability to see the impact of my work on specific outcomes. I think that you just need to keep that sort of stuff in mind. And it's relevant for all age groups. And I think that's the key, Sean. It's not yeah. actually unique. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is the yeah. same for everyone. Yep. But what I'm kind of taking away, Sean, is, you know, it's not even like maybe not talking in terms of generations, but thinking about, you know, the needs of people in their 20s are slightly different or, you know, where they're at in life is slightly different than people in their 30s and 40s and 50s and yep. whatever. Yep. And therefore, they might be looking for some different things or, you know, willing to do different things and all that stuff, you know. I remember in my younger days, it was like, travel for work, awesome. You know, and now it's like, oh, you know, with a family and stuff, oh, I don't yep. want to travel quite as much yep. as I used to. Yeah. That's the predictable stages or passages of life. It's a and fantastic book. Recommend it to anybody. But yes, it's it's it comes back to this. You know, once you label somebody, you judge them. So let's not do that. Let's drop those labels. Think of everybody in the organisation as a human being with needs. There are generic needs that all will share, but there are of course also specific needs for those individuals. And understand that they've grown up with the world on their fingertips. And so that's a different way of thinking about the world than what people like I grew up with. Fantastic. I think that's a great note to end it on, Sean. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyright by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.